Hi, I'm Sean Eli. Welcome to another Ivy League of Comedy video cast. I'm not calling it a podcast because there's video and nobody's used an iPod in over a decade. Our guest today is Scott Blakeman, who is a comedian and co-host of his own podcast called Getting Through It with Scott and... And, and Tom. And Tom. So who's Tom and why, why does his name come second? Well, actually, it comes first. Uh, this, <laughs> it's uh, Getting Through This with Tom and Scott. I don't know, I've known Tom for like 40 years from, he used to do stand up and then he went off to LA and became a very successful comedy writer. And, you know, we've, we've always had these very fun, funny phone conversations over all these years. And we, we say that, you know, the show is 40 years in the making because we're both procrastinators. But finally, last April, finally we said, you know, there's really no excuse. It's not like a lot's going on. So literally April 1st, we started it. And we did 302 episodes every day, literally every day until last month. Now we do it Monday through Friday. And it, it was really, it started off as just a great way to literally for us to get through these times, yeah. but it really turned into just sort of turning those phone conversations into shows and it's been a lot of fun. I know how you feel because there's a comedian I've been emailing, I haven't in a while, but we'd email back and forth and I'd look at the emails and say, these should be in a book. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, we, you get a bunch of comics together. A lot of times there are these great things or things you said, or you try to replicate it. So, you know, we're working on getting people to listen. I mean, that's the age old issue with all podcasts, but just knowing that it's on, it's being recorded. So we can actually refer to it. That, that, that alone is a good feeling. Right. And I have to tell you, I download a lot of podcasts and listen in my car and I have a thumb drive in my car. And when I finish it, I put more podcasts on it. And that worked well. There was a good balance between how fast I was listening and how fast I was downloading. Until the pandemic, I've only driven, you know, 2,000 miles or so this year. So I have about 400 hours of podcasts sitting on thumb drives, and I don't know if I'll ever get through them. Well, but my, thresh sure. my threshold of boredom has gotten um, changed. So now if anything doesn't appeal to me 100%, I just go on to the next one. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I shouldn't admit this, but, you know, I, I never – Listen, I guess, I mean, being on, being on yours several months ago, whenever there was, who knows what time is these days, uh, doing them is always a lift and doing this today, it's always a great lift. I somehow never got into that habit, even though I know there's great stuff out there. I still have to be reminded, yeah, I've got Netflix, Amazon Prime, all that. I still kind of uh, feel when I do watch stuff there, I'm accomplishing a lot. So remember the old days growing up as a kid, it was like, stop watching TV. Now I apologize. We're not watching enough TV to people. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to get to that. Yeah, I'm going to start watching Call My Agent. I'm sorry. I, I, I will tomorrow, definitely. Well, I've been working out at home in the winter, and I, I have a semi-broken computer. I dropped a laptop a few years ago, and the screen cracked, and it still works. But there's just a line running through the screen. And so I, I never threw it out. I stuck it in a closet, and that's perfect for watching comedy specials. So I stuck that in the basement, downloaded a bunch of comedy specials. And that's what I watch when I work out. And it's interesting to watch people's specials. And I have to say, you would think that some of the top comedians are super hilarious. And I'm like, they don't have a lot of punchlines. They're just very slow and deliberate on stage. But it seems to work for them. Yeah, I mean, you know, and the, uh, the people's, I think, first specials are probably obviously always the best because that's your career's work up until that point. Right, you right. You it. take 15 years to write your first special. And then you think, I'm a genius. I'm going to write another hour this year. Yeah, there's very few people, you know, of course, the great George Carlin pulled that off. Robert Klein. I mean, uh, you know, in, in the old days, 
no one had specials, but it was like David Brenner doing 150 some odd Tonight Show appearances. That alone is pretty incredible. If you if it's not repeating 150 times five minutes is, is incredible. So uh, Big Joe Hansen has done like 70 Letterman, something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's all impressive. Some people they have a deal, you know, and they have to produce a special, and some aren't as hilarious as other others. But uh, and it almost seems like there's been a shift in comedy to where that's okay too. It's it's not like you have to kill every second. It's sort of I oh, think like, that's an interesting point. Well, I mean, it's true. Comedy is not just about making people laugh, but that should be the primary focus or it's not stand-up comedy. Oh, absolutely. And I, I feel, you know, as someone who's done a lot of political comedy over the years, this podcast that I do with Tom Saunders, there's none of that. I mean, it reflects the times we live in, obviously, but it's more going off onto absurd things and wordplay and stuff like that. And I felt that you know, during the, look, during the Donald Trump years, and I'm glad I could refer to it in the past tense, you know, I'm sure you confronted this many times, Sean. That, if anybody's watching this in the future, if, he's referring to Donald Trump Sr., not Don, not President Don Trump Jr. Uh, yeah, I hope there's no, that's not a fact to be confused with, but uh, no, people would say, oh, it must be great for you guys, and it wasn't, and, and you know, it's not just a great comedian, but as a, a comedy producer, you know that you encountered many times people saying, tell the comics, no Trump stuff. So it, I'm, I'm thrilled for a million reasons why he's not president, but comedically, it's actually a great relief too. And I think some of the late night hosts, and I always give them credit, I don't criticize other comedians, but as you say, there's no substitute for being funny. It's not, being serious and thoughtful is a, is a gift, but a lot of people have that. Being funny and thoughtful, very few people have that. And that's what I think hosts and comedians have the responsibility to do. Well, I see that the late night shows have gotten a lot tougher for the hosts who are not used to working without audiences. And I think mostly it's because they don't have a stand-up comedy background. Most of them started in improv and they're just not used to writing jokes and performing them to five drunks, you know, in the 2 a.m. show. Yeah. So, um, they're not used to not having laughter and they don't, their timing is terrible. They just step on their punchlines. You don't get a chance to laugh and they've moved on because they don't pause. Well, I think that the most successful ones are the ones that have adapted during these times. And it, it is hard. That's the fun thing about the podcast we do. We don't need an audience because we make each other laugh. Or we're playing off each other. And I think, uh, you know, when you just take the way it was in 2019 and push that into a Zoom talk show, uh, it, it's not the same thing. So uh, some of them have been more successful than others at uh, adapting. I guess it has been more serious. And my, my favorite thing about, which I hope we keep even after this is all over, are having pundits uh, appear from home. And I've done that from time to time. Just last, this past Monday, I was on News Nation. It used to be WGN America. And even though I love going into studios and getting makeup on and, you know, being in the lights, it's fun. It's kind of nice also to put a sport jacket on in my living room and just wait. So and you dressed up for them. You didn't dress up for me. Well, I do for you. I look. I do have this. I'm not wearing it. I have a sweater, and uh, I think that in these days that's getting dressed. I've worn a sweater since last November. So, uh, but I didn't wear the tie with them. I did wear the sport jacket. But um, so I don't know. Part of me likes to be there, but uh, you know, if you watch these pundits, you look at the bookshelves. As you can see, I <laughs> have no books. Uh, basically, my bookshelf has cereal on it, so I think I'd be judged harshly if people said, oh, let's see, Kashi, very fruitful. He's a very smart guy. People so, have told me that they like my virtual background, which is those are flowers from next to my driveway, but I'm going to go and, and get rid of my virtual background and show you what my office looks like. 
And it works very well too. Uh, I was on, I was on uh, a podcast, a video cast a couple of months ago. Actually, no, you know what? It wasn't that. It was, I was on the Wendy Williams show and I sent oh. in a video that they ran. Oh. And I, I, it wasn't quite this view because this is with a webcam, but that was actually with a video camera. And I set up a tripod basically where I'm sitting, but pointing back that way. And you couldn't quite read. And that's, you can see two shelves of, of I think a three shelf bookshelf. And I was looking at it on TV and you can't read the titles of the books because they're too small, except for one, there was one word you could read on that bookshelf and I'm going to get it. Hold on. Okay. And it was this. <laughs> the only word you could see was dying. And I'm watching myself on TV, like thinking <laughs> all of those are comedy books. That's you know, two and a half shelves, basically almost all comedy books. Why is there a book on death on that shelf? <laughs> and so I had to go upstairs. I'm like, oh, it's a book about dying on stage. Somebody might have thought you were a fan of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I guess, you know. Stages if if I had that book, it wouldn't be on that shelf. Yeah, yeah. Well, I give you credit for having any books on the shelves. I just don't have that. And it's kind of a stark, it's my mid-century modern thing. But um, yeah, I like the office setup. I think that's a great, uh, it's actually, if you do any pundit stuff, that's perfect. Too. Well, I, I, uh, I was on Australian TV a couple of days ago. And the beauty of this is news has gotten used to not having people in the studio. So you can appear on TV all over the world. Oh yeah, and you could get people uh, for, to do things. I, I've loved seeing these, um, some of these play readings they've had with all different, with Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts, they did one for Fast Times at Ridgemont High recently. And I watch, and watching these Q and A's, one of the things I do miss among many things is being a SAG after member, going to the screenings of yeah. this time of year and, and, uh, and you get great Q and A's live. I mean, you'd see the great people. So I miss that. I did watch one on the computer with uh, Mrs. America, Kate Blanchett, a bunch of other great actresses. And the nice thing was it looked like they were my Zoom friends on the screen and I posted on Instagram and yeah, I just talked to Kate on a Sunday. Well, right, so that is the one, I think that'll continue too in some ways because you don't need that people schlep in to Midtown Manhattan to, to four minutes when you could do what we're doing now. Yeah, but I think it's interesting that some of the more famous people are arranging their bookshelves specifically to say, what message do I want to send? And oh, yeah. I, I grew up in a house full of books. My mother's an interior decorator and she read a lot and we had books everywhere. And the room that had the TV that I would play in as a kid was called the library and it had books on every available wall. And I always thought that was cool. And when I grew up, I would have that. And I had a lot of books. And a few years ago, I realized I'm never rereading 90% of these books. Why are they, why are they sitting in my house? where nobody else will read them and I donated them. And now I have um, downstairs in my living room, I have two or three shelves of art books, one shelf of books written by people I know. And that's annoying because the shelf is now full and I have books sideways on that shelf. Yeah. I have to tell my friends to stop writing books. Well, my issue is I just moved back in October and uh, you know this is not an issue that comics under the age of, I don't know, you can figure out the math better than me, but. So just to say that I've got about 12 boxes of VHS tapes and uh, I whittled through them. I threw away a lot, anything that wasn't Scott Blake performing so-and-so. And then I have my TV things in a box and three quarter inch and other outmoded things. And I couldn't, so that I, that I need a storage space just for that alone. 
And yes, there's the digitizing places, but I, I can't sink thousands into it. I've done it with some. And audio cassettes, those aren't professional, but they're more me when I was 12 years old, you know, doing Rangers play-by-play -play on my little Panasonic uh, cassette player. So that's my next task. And again, if you're 20 to 40, whatever, it's meaningless to them because it's all digitized to begin with. Yeah, because when we started, at least when I started in stand-up comedy, you'd get a, a VHS tape of your set. And I have two big boxes filled with VHS tapes of me on stage. I actually have a VCR that has a digital audio out. And I lent it to a friend because she had all these tapes she wanted to digitize. And that was 10 months ago. And she keeps swearing she's going to get to it and get it back to me. But I realized just for storage purposes, I should do that. And it's most of those sets are five or 10 minutes. It wouldn't take that long yeah. to digitize them. No, no, I, I definitely need to do that. And, and uh, uh, yeah, it, it, it's just, um, it's just one of the things that I guess people don't have to worry about who are, uh, you know, just starting out. But uh, and it, I can't bring myself to throw these things away. So uh, when yeah, I move those also- two boxes, was, Those two boxes yeah. will fit on this now. Oh, exactly, exactly. So I, I wish I had two big boxes. I have like 12. So, um, but, you know, and then also, um, um, I, I grew up, I, I was living in my family home the last two years, so I also had all the memorabilia from my parents, and uh, I feel like I'm the family historian or archivist, so I've got boxes of amazing stuff, and, and uh, so I'm, I'm going to be going back to the steward unit and gradually getting that stuff out, too. So wait, so where are you living now? You said you moved. Now I moved, I did move, I'm one of those people, I moved back into Manhattan, and I decided, I hadn't lived in Manhattan for 16 years, and back in, probably when I talked to you last on your podcast, uh, last summer, uh, I made the decision, even with all those articles, everyone's leaving. No one wants to be in Manhattan. Good, said, it's no. cheaper. Go to Manhattan. Well, it, and I, it was, it's much cheaper. It's, it's 20 years ago prices. I mean, I, I really, it's, it's it, in some ways cheaper to live in Manhattan than parts of Brooklyn. So, yeah. cause, uh, there wasn't an appreciable downturn as much as here. So I'm glad I'm here. I mean, my, most people I know are here. It's still lively, you know, and, and, you know, Sean, it's still amazing to me as growing up in, in Brooklyn, 10 minute walk to Central Park or the Met or the river. And, and it's, it's still exciting to me. And I'm, I'm glad I'm here. And comedy clubs theoretically are opening up next month. Of course, now that, you know, during the last year, it's like, no, there's no comedy. I don't have to do anything. Now it's like, oh, they're reopening. Oh, I hope I get some spots. So yeah. the I'm, dynamic has changed. I'm wondering whether all the comics are going to come back or some of them are going to be like, well, some may have moved out of the area, but. Others will be like, until I'm vaccinated, I'm not so sure I want to go in. So I'm wondering whether there'll be more opportunities for people who don't have that uh, issue. Well, we'll have to see. I mean, comedy has been going on in these other states, especially the ones that open up quickly and completely. And, uh, you know, I, I would have stayed away from those. Uh, I do see lately, like Judy Gold did a theater in Fair, uh, Fairfield. I think you probably worked there in, yeah. in Fairfield. Uh, and that's live. And I see that opening up. I, I am lucky to have been... I'm fully vaccinated, so that's another perk of being a... Uh, you can go back to clubs on, I think it's April 3rd, right? Uh, yeah, April 2nd or April 3rd. Of course, the question is, uh, you know, um, the comic strip was really my home base, and sadly, Richie Tinkin passed away yeah, uh, recently, the, the great owner of the club, and I don't know, I haven't heard what the, the status of the club is. I know New York Comedy Club and some others will, Stand Up New York, so, but yeah, it does pose the thing... Uh, okay, they're open now. I can't use the excuse there's no comedy, so. Well, at Comic Strip, I'm not sure what's happening because I was told, I think Al Martin told me, who owns Broadway Comedy Club, that they were looking to give up their lease. So they may move somewhere else or maybe. Oh, not. 
And yeah, Richie, Richie was interesting. Richie auditioned me a bunch of years ago. Yeah. And I, I know I'll tell the audience, if we have an audience, how that process works. You wait in line to get a date for an audition spot. And it's five minutes after the regular show on a Monday night. And you got all these new comics and they're all nervous sitting in the bar waiting. And then they tell you to do your spot and you do five minutes. And it used to be a woman named Starla who would talk to you. And after that, when she no longer auditioned people, it was Richie. And I auditioned and I think it was probably my second time. And afterwards, he's, I went over to hear what he had to say, you know, thinking, oh, I'm ready to, to start working here. And he said, I know who you are. I've seen you before. I think you're very funny. And I'm going to paraphrase, but he said something like, the last thing I need is another over 40 generic heterosexual white guy with no TV credits. And like, as a businessman, I totally understood that. Like, why is he going to book me when he can book Dan Natterman? So. Uh, yeah, you know, it's hard. There's so many great people. I, I was lucky enough. I mean, it goes back to, again, I mean, this is a year also that I've embraced my age. You know, in this business, it's always sort of, you like to keep it. How long oh, you're 73 up? now? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I know I would have gotten the vaccine even sooner then, but uh, uh, no, I actually, uh, well, I'll say it. I don't say anywhere. I was 66, which I, I, I you know, I, I, really I was didn't. actually thinking you were 61, so okay. Well, thank you. Well, it's, uh, uh, my dating sites have 61. No, I actually, I, I never lie on those either, and I probably should. But uh, in those days when I passed in 78, 79, the, the MCs passed you, and Jerry Seinfeld was the MC. Oh, no. By the way, and, to explain, passing yeah. the audition means getting passed at a club means you can then work there. The regular, yeah, Jerry in those Seinfeld days, 1978. Passing. They had crowds. I mean, literally, I remember walking in once in 1970 at 1.30 in the morning and it was packed 250 people to the rafters and the regular schedule was still going on before the late night comedians could go on. So Jerry was the one and I remember he said, you're great, you remind me of me. And uh, and so, but of course in those days, uh, you know, you had to wait and go on and make 4, 4.30, but it really, I feel very fortunate that in those days there was this group that we hung out together. We did it, went through it together. Dennis Miller was in that group for a while. Uh, we went out to the diner till seven in the morning because there was nothing to do the next day. Nobody worked. You, as we talked about, you mailed a VHS tape if it was a busy day. And then we met up again later at two in the morning. So I'm very thankful that time. These days, comedians, I think it's more isolated, you know, and, and uh, I don't think they have that camaraderie. They have some, but there's, not there's still, I mean, depending on where you're working, but there's not as much hanging out in a club like that because yeah. you want to go on to your next spot. Right, but, well, that's true. It's good but to I have a place hanging out at the comic strip and Catch a Rising Star when I was in high school, just as a fan. And the show on a Saturday night would go until three or four o'clock in the morning. And if, oh, friends, yeah. if friends came with me, they'd be like, it's time to go. And I'm like, there's still more show. I couldn't understand why everybody else had left because well, I, I was going to be there as long as somebody kept making me laugh. And at some point, one of them said, you know, that's the bus boy on stage. And I'm like, I don't care if he's funny, I'm going to stay. Well, you know, Colin Quinn was a bartender. Uh, uh, the great Larry Miller was a, a drummer. Uh, you know, so a lot of comedians came out of uh, staff positions. And I went out, I think, five in the morning once. And there was one person in the audience. And in the middle of my set, they apparently had left because they were in the back and I didn't know it. So I just <laughs> kept going. And uh, But it was just great to be there. And, and it, it was great. I mean, yes, there's always camaraderie among comedians, even if it's one gig, you know, the great thing about comics, and you know this better than anybody, I could do one gig with somebody and have one conversation with them, and you just remember each other forever. You don't see them for 20 years, but it, it stays with you. So that's a wonderful thing about doing comedy. I'm still surprised when I mention one comic to another, and they're like, I don't know who that is. 
And I'd be like, you're both New York comics. How do you not know each other? But I mean, now it's a lot different because there's so many more clubs and so many more younger people that there's 25 year olds getting spots that were not available to people 25, you know, when I started, because you needed 10 or 15 years of experience. But now everybody's looking for youth. So, but I'm surprised at like a 40 or 50 or 60 year old comic. And I mentioned one to another, like, I don't know who that is. Well, you know, in, in when I started out, you, yeah, you, not only did you know everybody in the city, you knew every comic of every comic in L.A. And if anybody did the Tonight Show, you knew who they were because they've been around forever and you knew them. Uh, now I've gotten to the point where I look at Saturday Night Live. I don't know the host or the music guest. I mean, music guest, forget it. That's been years. But even the host. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of people. I mean, I, I follow people on social media or just see what's going on. But, yeah, there's plenty of people I've never heard of. But. Uh, I'm happy to, and, and really, anytime I do a show or a podcast or anything, there's always a comedian who I meet, and I always feel like they're celebrities because I see their social media stuff, and I've met a lot of great people through that, and and the great thing about comedy is, as much as we, very funny, you're, what you said, what Richie said to you, we don't need another, you know, white guy, all that, and it is great to see the diversity, and, and when I started out, it was all white Jewish guys, pretty much, and, and that's changed, you know, dramatically. And that's great. It's great to have the diversity and comedy and everything else. I try as much as possible when I put shows together to have diversity. And every once in a while, I have a client who says, no, I want to pick the comics. And I go through, it's not your job. You need a balanced show. And they're like, well, I picked the three funniest people. I'm like, there's no such thing as the three funniest people. Who'd you pick? And they basically pick me and two other people who are just like me. I'm like, and I did a show a couple of years ago at a synagogue. And... He said, I want these three comics. And I'm like, they're exactly the same. And he's like, those are the three funniest. I said, you think so, but you just picked three men. And he said, well, maybe next year we could have women. So we do a Q&A at the end of the show. And the first question we get is, why weren't there any women on this show? Yeah. Well, and also, what am I supposed to do? I didn't, I, the guy said, I'm only going to hire you if you, this is the lineup you get. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, they the should leave it to people pick, like. And then the schmuck didn't pick me the next year and. I went with somebody else because I stood up to him. Yeah, well, they should leave it to people like you. No, first of all, he did, they don't know how to put a show together. And, you you know, uh, they have to balance and all that. I remember when I started out, you know, there were all these clubs in New Jersey we did. And it was great because we meet at the Improv, which is no longer on 44th and 9th. And everybody would be going off with two other comics in a car to different parts of New Jersey. And that was always a great moment, who you're working with and all that. But in those days, one thing that... I've noticed over the years is the overemphasis of the word headliner or, or the, how it's not applicable all the time. Certainly when you do a book a theater, a headliner means something, you know, sometimes though somebody uses that word headliner very arbitrarily. And in, in the early days, they booked three people. We all got $75 for 30 minutes and the loudest guy closed. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and in some ways that was a better show, if, you know, especially if there's a real disparity. I mean, you know, when you book a show, every position, they're, they're really good. But some clubs out of town, you might have an MC who's been doing it for a week. And that's, as you know, is a pivotal part of the show. Well, I mean, most shows in New York City, you may have, you know, five or six comics on the roster, each doing 15 or 20 minutes. And they're all headliner quality. They're all really strong comics because it's New York. There's a million really funny people. But in a comedy club outside of New York or LA, you have an MC who does 15 minutes and the middle is called the feature, does a half hour. And the headliner, which is really a closer and not necessarily a headliner, as you said, does yeah. 45. And 
In other countries in the world, the MC is, is a headliner who MCs the show because you need the opener to be strong to get the crowd laughing. And I always say, if a show doesn't go well, it's probably because the MC didn't do a good job. And I've been both a bad MC and a good MC. And I can see the difference. Well, you really set the tone. I think in, in Canada and in Europe, they call them the compare, which is a more elegant sounding uh, name. And yeah, I remember uh, I never performed with them, but Boston had, has these legendary comments like Steve Sweeney, Lenny Clark, uh, 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 others I can't think of at the moment. And it was their show and they emceed, but they did hours and hours during the show, but they carried the show. So I, I always noticed that. I mean, uh, and also, even with talk shows in general, not every comic is a great talk show. Right. You know, well, um, Letterman uh, was certainly he's a broadcaster, but not all are, and not all good comedians are good MCs. And as you say, it's a really important position to have for the show. Well, I was overseas, and I'm not going to name the club or the country, but they had a guy who was a headliner who MC'd the show, and it was great. Except he did about an hour up front. And the whole show was about him. He did, it was all crowd work. He was talking to the audience and making it the show basically about him and them and not doing what seemed like prepared material. And that's really tough to follow. And in between all the comics, he would do another 10 or 15 minutes. And the club was happy with this. But every comic I spoke to said, yeah, he's an asshole. We don't like him because he does that. He makes the shows go on too long. He makes it all about himself. And it's hard to follow. And by the time I got, I was headlining. By the time I got on, you know, the, the audience was done. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's so, and he's not doing a good job because you want to make it the best for the other people. Right, on but the he show. thought he was doing a good job. He got he got all the laughs. He basically borrowed from the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's great that you did that. It must have been a great experience. I know performing in South Africa and Australia and uh, all yeah. uh, far flung places. Well, it was great because I I was just as I said I was on Australian TV earlier this week to talk for five or so minutes. They wanted to know how comedy had changed under the, you know, during the pandemic. And I said, you know, I've been there and they were in, it was this radio, the TV station was in Melbourne and they've got a great comedy club there called the Comics Lounge. And it's got, have you ever been there? I have, no, I haven't, but it's, I, it's, a, it's a, I think it probably holds 500 people. And I was there on a Tuesday night and they apologized to me because they only had 150 people in the audience. Yeah. And 150 paying customers on a Tuesday is, is huge in New York. Yeah, Australia has been great. They, they love American uh, comedians and, and, and they, um, uh, yeah, no, it, and they have a Melbourne Comedy Festival too. So uh, that's been the biggest change. You know, I performed in Amsterdam, I believe like 1998, and it was kind of new then. Uh, now, you know, to perform in another country and now it's, it's really uh, become so, uh, you know, prevalent everywhere, and I, which, which is great. Yeah. I, I haven't been to too many, but I'd love to. I was doing a show a few years ago with Joe DeVito and he was telling the audience, you know, I performed, I think he said in Sweden, he said they've had stand-up comedy there for seven years. Like they never had it before. But yeah, I, I didn't perform in Amsterdam. I performed in the Netherlands in another city because I planned my trip like a month before I left and it was too late to get any spots in Amsterdam. But, you know, and I was in a university and engineering company town where everybody spoke English, but almost nobody was from an English speaking country. So we had audience members from all over the world for the university and the engineering company. And I, I take it back. There were people from India. India is an English speaking country, but basically everybody else was from elsewhere in Europe or Asia. And 
it's amazing to, to do jokes for an audience where English isn't the first language. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting because when you do break it down, it's it's sort of it's very it's a real great unifier. I mean, it really is. It's sort of comedy is comedy, and you know, in Amsterdam you might go, you know, where are you from, Alkmaar, as opposed to New Jersey. So yeah. it, it's really the same dynamic, and it's is great. That New I love Jersey, the fact that New Jersey of, of the Netherlands. I believe so. This is New Jersey of everywhere, you know. I know. It's one I don't of know the, which came first, uh, but. One of the things I do is I will go into a place and I will ask before I get on stage, like, what's the location you make fun of? And they'll name a town. And everybody agrees, except the people, of course, from that town. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's something that I always love to do. And, and, uh, and you know, especially doing synagogues and, and any kind of private situations that the amount of mileage you get out of a reference that may not be the most brilliant joke in the world, but you're referring to a specific thing about that group or a name or something or a diner in that town. Uh, and it really can go a long way. Well, I did it. I have a joke where I talk about, you know, I used to be a banker and then I say, don't, don't get upset. I know you think all banks are evil, but not all banks are evil. And the reference I use in New York is I say, there is a bank in Fort Lee, New Jersey that will, if you qualify, lend you the money to cross the George Washington Bridge because that's an expensive toll. Yeah. But when I go to somewhere else, I can't use that reference. I, so I have to say to people, like, what's something that's known to be expensive or overpriced in this town or country? And in Dublin, they said, you know, a night of drinks at Temple Bar, which is a, a neighborhood, it's basically a Greenwich Village of Dublin. So in Ireland, you can use that. But in a different country, you have to pick something else. But every country has something that's expensive. Oh yeah, because it's just life. It's the same, it's all yeah. the same kind of thing. You just, if you're a good comic, you get all your references. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's important. And I think sometimes comics don't know. And then uh, one of the first things, know, know the room, whether it's in the States or elsewhere. And the little, even a little research can go a long way and people appreciate it. You know, New York is known everywhere, but it's nice not to just do your subway that, uh, you know, and try to yeah, get well, to the people. They teach you, I mean, New York comics learn that the easy way or the hard way. If you're going to Ohio and your joke is about how your rent state, sorry, about how your studio apartment costs $3,000 a month, you can't do that joke because they think you're an idiot. They're like, you can buy a house for $2,000 a month. Why are you paying $3,000 a month for a studio apartment? So the joke's not going to work and they think you're a doofus. Yeah, yeah, no frame of reference. But yeah, one thing I, I remember reading before I started doing comedy traveling when I was new is be careful if you think you're making fun of something local, because if you get into town and there's a giant building that's shaped sort of like a phallus and you think you're going to make a joke about it, keep in mind that every other comic who's come through that town has already had the same joke and they're sick of it. Yeah. And the worst thing, I guess people don't do as much anymore, but people would start over with, oh, do you guys have cable? You know, do you guys get cable here? Or do you guys get have Is there a Burger here? King in your town? Yeah. I mean, just immediately you lose them. And talking about losing the audience, I remember there used to be a room a long time ago, a dairy restaurant in Lower Manhattan on John Street, and they had a kosher dairy restaurant, they had comedy on Saturday night, and I'm Jewish, and that's, you know, you know I've done many synagogues with you, and, and that's my milieu, but it was orthodox, and I hadn't uh, really done that crowd, and I thought, oh, they're going to love me, I'm going to kill, I go up there, and the first, this is a Saturday night, the first thing I said is, so anyway, I was watching TV last night, Sabbath, <laughs> and just lost them right there. So um, you always have to know your room and know your audience. I did a joke, the first temple gig I did, I talked about having swordfish and they all looked at me. 
And I'm like, what? Swordfish is kosher. And like, no, it's not. And I said, my mother kept kosher and she served swordfish. And they're like, well, she shouldn't have. And I went back to back and looked it up. And, you know, the Bible doesn't list what foods are kosher by food. It's by characteristics of the animal. You know this. So um, it describes a fish and swordfish. There's some ambiguity. But now when I tell the joke, it's salmon because nobody's going to argue with it. Right. And it doesn't matter what the fish is. I just needed a fish for the joke. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know, definitely. It's, um, uh, well, I'm even some that even now I can't believe I did, it was a Orthodox singles event or something. And I talked about Valentine's Day. It was kind of hissing because it's St. Valentine. And, oh, and, 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 you know, so. That's just that's, stupid. Yeah, yeah. It, it gets a little too far at some point. Uh, well, I have a new joke where I say, I'm Jewish, but I celebrate Greek Orthodox Valentine's Day because <laughs> it, it comes two weeks later. So restaurant reservations are easier to get and flowers are cheaper. <laughs> and then true. from there, I go on to talk about stereotypes. But yeah, I mean, you never know what kind of references people will either not get or be annoyed by. Well, and then that's the thing. And I, I've done a lot of colleges and with Dino Badala, we do a show called Stand Up for Peace, Jewish Muslim comedy show. And I've really never encountered what we're supposed to encounter on college campuses about that's offensive, don't say that. But uh, I do wonder, you know, there have been, I, think, I do think people, there is less of a willingness to just laugh and be light about certain things. I mean, certain things need to be called out on and, and, and haven't been, but there's a certain point where it's like, okay, whatever, you know. I think in the old days, people did sort of just enjoy comedy. Now, especially with political comedy, they're like this. And there's no well. They either enjoy it or they'd shut up. They wouldn't complain. Yeah, right. I think a lot of times when people, are, maybe most of the time, when people are upset by a joke, maybe not most, but a lot, they're upset by a joke not because they think not because the joke is offensive, but because the topic bothers them. So if you have a joke that's that's about racism, but you're not perpetuating race-based theories or whatever, you're you're actually making fun of racism, but as soon as you start talking about race, they get upset and they think you're making fun of whatever you're trying to point out is wrong. Yeah, no, that's an issue. There was a comedian, I forgot his name, but he was performing somewhere and he was, yeah, he was just tackling an issue in a, in a sensitive way, but they just kind of pulled the mic and nope, you can't talk about that. So, so uh, hopefully we won't see as much of that, you know, going forward because it's important to talk about these important things and it's important to have the thoughtful attitude about it but let's let's talk about it and you can use satire to make fun of things i you know I when i started i yeah. started in 2003 and i did some political comedy and i realized you're going to piss off half the audience if you do political comedy and that and the fact that you would have to continue to write new jokes all the time because if you're talking about current events like your trump jokes are useless now pretty much and so i said i don't want to do political comedy and i have a couple of jokes here and there yeah but and overseas, I told Trump jokes because when you travel, when I discovered when you travel overseas, everybody hates Trump. And as soon as they find out you're an American, they want to know where you stand. So I have to open by making just one joke about making fun of Trump and then they would be fine. Yeah, when I was in Amsterdam the first time, 98, they wanted to hear about Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. And, and, that, that, and, and the fact is they know about our politics. We know nothing, the average American knows nothing. So um, uh, yeah, but as I said, uh, even during Trump, I mean, I, I, I do think of laughing liberally. I was one of the original members of that. And it got to a point where it was never happened before. It was depressing 
talking about Trump, even in the guise of comedy. And so I invited people on who didn't do political comedy because you needed a, a, a break from that. So, uh, and it, it's a little bit of a, that's why it's good for everybody. I was that Trump's not, hopefully won't be on the scene uh, politically and, uh, and, you know, because there's always other things you can talk about, always things going on every day. And, um, do you have uh, a handle on something to make fun of with Biden? Because with Bill Clinton, it was, you know, he was a good old boy and then the Monica Lewinsky issues. And, you know, do you have anything? And with Trump, it was easy. And yeah, some presidents, it was harder to make fun of. Do you, do you yeah, have I mean, I think there's, you know, with political comedy, I found when looking back, it wasn't like I had an hour about Bush or Reagan or Trump. It's just the scene in general. And what would say, I mean, this isn't, formulated into a joke, but it's sort of that feeling we have now watching Jen Psaki, the press spokesperson, it's just, they're nice people. Oh, Jen, oh, and, you know, with Sarah Sanders, it was this mean, shut up, you're not a journalist. And Jen, like, okay, I'll circle back to you on this. So just the feeling of having nice people and adults. And, and, and for me, it's like all the people I look at on Twitter when Trump is president going, why isn't this person there handling the COVID thing? He, he knows what he's talking about. So, so having that is a good feeling. And, um, but this thing, like, uh, for example, and, uh, you know, just sadly, there's just bad things that happen, regardless of who's president, uh, the mass shooting in Atlanta this week. And uh, I, I just find it interesting to me that uh, when it's a white person who, who uh, you know, they, they, they would say his mental illness is the issue. You know, if it was a Muslim, you know, it's terrorism. And to me, it's, it's all terrorism. No one ever says, yeah, that Al Qaeda, yeah, that was a bunch of mentally ill guys, really. They really need some help. Maybe some treatment. I, I heard on WCBS radio this morning, they, they used the phrase, the shootings that resulted in the death of eight people. And I'm like, they didn't result. And that was the goal. Yeah. Like he murdered eight people. It wasn't yeah. a result. And, and they, they always live, by the way, the white shooters, the police never strong arm them. And I mean, what, what the police said afterwards, literally, yeah, he had a bad day and it kind of, kind of got to him. Yeah. I don't know that that's how I would, uh, describe it so it's uh, sadly going forward it's going to turn out to be one of the better days in his life yeah yeah so there's always something going on and again it doesn't have to be president centric so uh i'm not worried so much about biden if people think he's boring that, that's fine with me if he does good stuff um but there was a time again a great guy mark russell uh, i met him yeah. once and he was the dean of political comedy at the time also with mort saul and others would play at the Shoreham Hotel in DC and Republicans and Democrats came and it was a more gentle time and not as partisan. And it just seems so quaint because I can't imagine us going back to that where they're all hanging out together. And no, cable news has made people more partisan and also made the politicians farther. The, the Republicans have gotten so much farther to the right because they're not worried about losing to Democrats with all the gerrymandering so much as just being primary from the right. Well, that's a great point. I mean, gerrymandering is a huge thing. And cooperation less attractive to them. Well, there's no, there's no incentive to be reasonable. You know, I mean, you have to be extreme one way or another. You, you get on Fox or MSNBC, uh, you know, you can say, uh, well, that's a good point. You know, there's a, couple, uh, a little nuance that there's no room for nuance. And, you know, when I do these shows where I have four minutes and I'm debating somebody, there's, there's no room for nuance and you need uh, everything has that. I mean, there's obviously things that are right or wrong, but there are other issues that there's more to say about it, but that never comes through. And uh, well, that's, I mean, Republicans, I don't want this all to be political, but Republicans have easier sound bites because it's very easy to say 
you know, cut taxes and money will fall from the sky and you're better at deciding what to do with your money than those people. And the reason you're poor is because of those people. It's a lot harder and more nuanced to go through the explanation of how the economy works. Exactly. Or the Republicans could say they've been doing this since the 60s. Oh, that's socialism. Ronald Reagan campaigned against Medicare in 61. That's socialism. So that, that, that bit has never gone away either for them. So uh, I hope there's at some point that that'll change. I don't know. I don't know really uh, when that'll happen, but, but it, you know, it does need well, to. At some point. Economists refer to some stuff as socialism. For instance, bailing out the airlines, they describe it as socializing losses and, you know, privatizing profits. And we oh, yeah. gave the oh, and a humongous amount of money. That, like, yeah, well, it's just the labels. I mean, what's, Medicare is socialism. It's great. You know, uh, social security, socialism is great. Police and fire departments, that's right. Socialism. I say, you know, I went to socialized socialism schools, public schools. When I call 911, the socialist fire department shows up. I have socialist roads that I drive on. The government hates them. That's just all the labels and everything is you're a liberal, you're this. And uh, that's, I think, and, and truthfully, none of these people are conservatives. The ones who are conservatives don't attack the capital and, and, you know, and, and killed law enforcement. I mean, they, these are terrorists. So it's, it's all the terms don't mean anything anymore uh, either. And, it's uh, like right when the Dr. Seuss company said they're not putting out some books anymore. And they're like, oh, this is terrible. And I'm like, it's private enterprise. It's their product. They can choose not to sell it. Right, right. And uh, it's too bad for me because I had my full Dr. Seuss collection except for those six books. <laughs> and now I'm not going to be able to complete it. You know, it. It may have turned out to be a really good business for them because... Oh, the book sold out oh, really. Oh, absolutely. I was looking at the New York Times book review this week, the top 10 in the, it was all Dr. Seuss books. So it, it did work out for them. Well, I'm, I'm, they're, they're bringing the Dr. Seuss books up, you know, for more modern times. So, so there's the cat in the eight, it, let me try to tell this right. I just thought of it. The cat with the AK-47. <laughs> you could hide it in the hat, I guess, yeah. too. So it's a, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, this whole thing, like the Republicans, that's cancel culture. And I'm not sure what that- It's called means. making people be responsible for what they did. Yeah, and it's just sort of, is that what people care about in the Midwest? Like, uh, you know, dude, I'm out of a job, and uh, but and that cancel culture thing is really the main But the issue. reason you're out of a job is because, you know, somebody said something and got called out for it. That's why you don't have a job. Yeah, it's, it's an issue. And that's another nuanced issue because there's certain- issues where, yeah, I think that was wrong, but do you have to just be disappear? You know, so uh, um, I got there's one recent case with Meyer Leonard, a basketball player of Miami Heat, and he's a big video gamer, which I don't understand that world, but, you know, apparently you say a lot of bad words in the heat of uh, the action. And he, it's not excusable, but he did say a, a, an anti-Semitic slur. And uh, Julian Edelman uh, on the New England Patriots, who's Jewish, uh, said, you know what, uh, he didn't mean it, it's, it's, it's not intentional, but that could be even more dangerous. I wanna to talk to him and explain it to him so he can learn about it. I think there are things that we can become better from and learn from that aren't intentional. And you know, if you just disappear somebody, never, they're never gonna learn and no one else is gonna learn why something is bad. So I think I'm sure, listen, if, if he used a, an ethnic slur, I'm sure he knows the word was bad. Oh, he used a lot of, well, frankly, he used another slur towards women that nobody complained about, which I guess you could say on TV now. Um, so, oh yeah. It's say a, it on the podcast, what word was it? 
Well, no, it was bitch. You know, it was basically, yeah. So, and that's used a lot. And I think you'd say it on network television now. You use it as a verb in that kind of body. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, it, it's a, it, it should be called out as wrong, but does he need to be banished from basketball for the rest of his life? I guess that those are the questions uh, to have. And, you know, people are still trying to figure that out. Now, it's funny when I was in South Africa, I was talking to comics and they used the C word a lot. Hmm. And I'm like, don't ever use that in the United States. And they're like, why not? And I'm like, because it's the most offensive word you can use. And they were like, no, it's not. And I'm like, well, in my country it is. And I would explain that it's just a really offensive term. And you've got to be really careful using that even on stage, unless that's your character and you're, you know, Andrew Dice Clay or something. And even then it would be. Yeah, different. yeah. But I, they I, were I, like, no, it just means jerk. Like, especially they would be more likely to call a guy that than a woman. It was just yeah. like jerk or bad. The way you might say, oh, you best. Yeah, well, in England, too, I think that yeah. that's you. So it's, you know, it's that's an interesting debate to have about words and, and even referring to certain words. And, and you know, and in the end of the day, they're words. It's, it's more about what's in your heart and, and, and you know, and, and are you that are you a racist and all that? So, you know, th those take a little more investigation to figure out. And uh, I mean, I truthfully don't like any of those words for any reason and and it's it's uh i find just language in general and comics could be lazy with using any kind of four letter words not that it doesn't have its place but um be nice not to hear any of that well i mean my mother used to if she heard a comedian telling a joke and he used a four letter word she would automatically decide the joke wasn't funny and the only reason he had to curse is to make the joke sound funnier by using dirty words because if the joke were funny on its own he wouldn't have to curse and that's clearly not true there are jokes that people don't need to use a four-letter word, but they choose to, and the joke is funny. And there are jokes that are funny without it, but that's not how they, you know, that's not how they chose to tell the joke. Yeah, and then there are people who use the words a lot because they just think if you more emphasize something, that it makes it funnier. Yeah, yeah. And but then you have, I mean, one of the greats of all time, Richard Pryor, certainly used those words, but it was more in, in a character vein and all that. So, uh, yeah, if it's not gratuitous, <laughs> it's fine. But I also grew up in a house where we didn't put salt on food, so. Yeah, <laughs> that usually yeah, translates to not liking four-letter words. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, my father had high blood pressure, so we didn't, uh, there was no salt, but yeah, we used other spices. But the fact is, it was weird growing up and going places where people put salt on stuff. And I totally still don't understand it. But yeah, I don't to this day, too. And so, yeah, I, I think... Uh, you know, it sounds corny, but trying to understand the difference, as, as you say, in one place, even just now in this whole culture, living here in New York, and I step outside, when I lived in, in part of Brooklyn near Sheepshead Bay, Brighton Beach, the mass compliance was maybe 15%, and they had some of the highest cases in the city. Now living in Manhattan, almost no one doesn't wear a mask. So even within a city, people live their lives very differently, and, and things that trouble somebody else doesn't trouble, you know, yeah, people in Florida and one of my best friends lives in an apartment house in Coney Island, and she can't even get the people who work in the building to put on masks. Yeah, well, that's incredible. Yeah. She doesn't want to go out. And I mean, here I live in the suburbs, and there's, I don't come across very many people, but people walking on the sidewalk often aren't wearing masks. And I just cross the street to get away from them. They don't, it doesn't even occur to them, oh, I should have put a mask on. Like yeah. if I'm approaching somebody and I'm 20 feet away, I'll put a mask on and I'll be like 10 feet away and I'll just ignore it. And I'll just go into the street and around them. Yeah. But this will be over, you know, in a few months, everybody will be vaccinated. 
Yeah, and I, I'm going to hold on to my mask for certain occasions, but uh, maybe the subway. I mean, you know, who needs to be fully seen on the subway anyway? And if it could stop me from getting a cold or something, uh, maybe I'll do it for that. I used to refer to the subway as the rolling incubator, and it pretty yeah. much is. But I, I posted something on Facebook a few months ago. It was the same picture of me in a mask, and there were three of them. And it said, you know, 2019 bank robber, 2020 COVID 2021 Halloween costume. Yeah, <laughs> right. And I wonder if going forward, you know, people have talked about what, what life is going to be like. I wonder if it'll be acceptable when we're not wearing masks to appreciate it. And I could walk on the street and say to a woman, hey, great face. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I just, I, I said to somebody uh, in July, I'm going to just start licking strangers again. Well, I've been, I haven't stopped. And in a way, there is a certain kind of, you know, looking at women with the eyes. I mean, it's certainly uh, not that I want to get used to just that. But I didn't say looking at, I said licking. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's taking it to another, another level, yeah. But it'll be nice. Hopefully it will be in a few months. I mean, when I talked to you last, it was a different situation. So we're, um, and by the way, the vaccination thing is amazing. And I hope everybody gets them as soon any of them whenever they can and it was the happiest time I've ever been in a medical facility I did a Mount Sinai and just everybody probably the closest thing to that is the OBGYN when a baby is born but everybody was in a great mood the nurse was going oh you're a comedian and you know it was really it's hey how are you doing I go how am I doing I'm getting a vaccine fantastic I'm thrilled so uh so I wish that for everybody you know very soon actually I got vaccinated uh, a week ago and I'd heard Yo-Yo Ma was playing the violin playing the cello, I guess, um, in uh, online when he was waiting. And I go to the vaccination place expecting, oh, maybe I'll, there'll be a line. I can tell some jokes and introduce myself. And there was no line. I just walked right in. They go, threw me out. And that was it. Yeah. So it was a, on the one hand, it'd been nice to do a little time, but it was nice to get, get out of there quickly, too. Well, I've been doing, I, I mean, not now that it's cold, but I was doing comedy on the street in front of my house for neighbors. And it was a lot right. of fun. Yeah. You think you might continue that even afterwards? Uh, you know, I put it on my town's Facebook page. I said, I'm doing this on my street. And it was written up in the local newspaper. And I said, if anybody, because we have happy hour, we were having happy hours every week. And I said, if anybody else wants to do this, I'll just come to your block and, and do some stand-up comedy for five or 10 minutes. And nobody took me up on it, but I did get booked for a private gig in somebody's backyard. Well, that's great. I think you remember before all this, outdoor gigs were always a thing. You were never good. You're like in darkness or somewhere. And the only one I've done since last March live is was outdoors in, in Park Slope in Brooklyn. It was before the vice presidential debate. And, and I kept the mask on. They all had masks on. But um, it was just nice to be out there and basically to see other comics and commiserate uh, with them. But I think outdoor will stay. And also Zoom shows. Uh, as, as not that they're anywhere near what it's like doing live, but that may still hang on a little bit uh, in some ways, even after it's over. Well, you know, I think there may be sort of a hybrid model. I have talked about this before, where you'll be a comic on stage, and there'll be a monitor in front of you with a bunch of people like it's a Zoom show. And while you'll have a live audience in the comedy club, you're also going to have people, you know, all over the world who can pay five bucks and be at the show and maybe behind you will also be a monitor so the audience, the live audience can see that essentially the TV audience and you can do crowd work. You can talk to somebody in the front row and you can also talk to somebody on TV and you're like, hey, Steve in Minneapolis, um, you know, and talk to him and, and exactly. get feedback. So those people feel like they're at the show. 
I know. I think that's definitely going to happen. And I've, I've seen already now with a couple of the live shows, it's certainly live stream, which is a little different, but you know, in, in, in basketball games, in, I think at the Chase Center in San Francisco is a big screen of the faces virtually. So yeah, I, I think that elements of what we have now will be incorporated into the live, as you said, and uh, uh, yeah, adds a whole other dimension to it. Well, if we had done, if this had happened five or 10 years ago before people had um, high-speed internet connections, it would be a totally different world. It would be so much harder for everybody. Oh, yeah. Well, I always think about what the people do in 1918 with that uh, pandemic. And, they didn't uh, have central heat back then. It was awful. Yeah, and it was, I don't think there was even radio then. You had, you know, vinyl records, so, and you wrote letters, but and not too many podcasts, I don't think, in 1918. So, uh, but they got through it, and uh, well, the Broadway stayed open during that it was interesting and um, Which is probably not a good idea yeah especially the way the seats are even in normal times you feel like you're sitting on someone's lap so uh i look forward to that coming back looks like in the, in the fall they're saying now yeah well i'm looking forward to comedy clubs opening and struggling for spots like we've yeah. always been doing well i'm looking forward to hanging out with you and complaining about comedy and why how i wanted me to get on early why is that guy doing long instead of thinking about how many times I have to wash my hands, which I'll keep doing. But uh, I think before you know it, because one thing is, I think this year has flown by. Uh, the first three, three weeks was forever, but the rest of it has. So I think before you know it, we'll be back in the clubs and it'll be a whole different thing. People thought I was crazy because before the pandemic, I'd carry a little bottle of COVID. And if I went to a restaurant after handling the menu, a little bit, did I say a little bottle of COVID? A little bottle of COVID. Yeah. yeah. That was weird. All right. A little yeah. bottle. I haven't, I haven't gone anywhere, so I haven't carried the Purell in a while, but I would carry a little bottle of Purell, and after handling a menu, which a bunch of people who've been eating with their fingers have been handling, and people who hadn't washed their hands have been handling, after I handled the menu, I would Purell my hands because okay. it felt more sanitary, and people thought it was weird. And, oh, and I was doing that for a few years before, and I remember performing in college campuses, and they would have maybe a flu little spike, and but I, and especially when you go to, you know, you do these events where there may be a little reception before or after and you're shaking someone's hands, then you eat a pigs in the blanket. And, you know, and I was always very conscious of that. And uh, yeah, I, I think I always, I mean, I've got so much extra Purell because I haven't gone out of the house much. Uh, certainly I'm going to be taking it with me way after this is all over because it's just common sense for anything. Well, I'm, I'm really hoping... Well, there's one thing I liked about Donald Trump is that he was a germaphobe and didn't like shaking hands. And I was hoping that when he became president, he would sort of do away with shaking hands and maybe in place we would bow. And unfortunately, he liked shaking hands when he discovered people wanted to shake his hand. When he, was well, he, he, and he was shaking hands when he announced his first COVID. Yeah, he was shaking hands during the pandemic. Exactly when one of the things was don't shake hands and, and he did it one of the many but, things he did but wrong. i was in thailand just before the pandemic i came back um on christmas day to um 2019 so just before the pandemic i was in thailand and they don't shake hands there they bow and i thought this is so much more sanitary and nicer well coincidentally or not thailand has had much lower cases than we have in most of the western world and uh, Vietnam, South Korea, the Asian countries have a whole culture that's very different and much more. They also obey and wear masks. Well, they've had stuff to deal with before. And they, yeah, I mean, I remember once in a while in the city, you'd see an Asian person wearing a mask on. I never understood, is that for them to protect me from them or vice versa? Now, of course, we understand how it's both. And 
Now I'm going to be the guy. People go, why is that guy wearing a mask? I had them. It's a fashion accessory. Now, why is he wearing a Herman Munster mask? That's gonna be well, like- yeah, <laughs> that would be a, a choice. Yeah, no one should make. All right, Scott, it was good talking to you. I hope to see you in person pretty soon. Yeah, I hope to see you soon, Sean. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. All right, thanks. I'll see you. Okay, take care. Bye.